Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome, welcome to the LSE, welcome to this LSE public uh, event. I am delighted to see you all uh, for what looks like a really promising um, event, set of ideas, presentation. My name is Federica Bicchi. I'm an associate professor in the Department of International Relations here uh, at LSE. And I think that it is really fitting that we have tonight uh, Professor Roy Allison from University of Oxford. Because as we approach one year from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the media will be awash with analysis, um, special issues, uh, special focus, trying to make sense of what has happened, what is happening, what continues to happen. But uh, what we really need is, in a way, the bigger picture. Uh, we need uh, some solid concepts uh, that can drive us uh, towards uh, a good understanding of what has happened. Because, as we were saying, um, this has been a watershed, and we need to understand exactly how it works. This is also an important event for the Department of International uh, Relations. Uh, we are uh, remembering a colleague uh, that was a long past in the department, and we're also here because of a, a special opportunity that has been uh, given to us. Um, and I'm going to break protocol a bit, and we, we will sort of march in and out of the lectern, but I would like to uh, invite uh, uh, Dr. Jürgen Hacke, uh, also Associate Professor in the Department of International Relations, to tell us why we're here tonight. Jürgen. Yes, thank you, Federica. Yes, on behalf of the Department of International Relations, uh, I would also like to welcome you to, to this event, uh, the Martin White Memorial Lecture. The Martin White Memorial Lecture is one of the very few named lectures organized by the International Relations Department. It is a biennial event. Uh, until recently, it was organized in alternate years by the University of Sussex, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House, and LSE. Notably, the first Martin White Memorial Lecture was held almost 50 years ago in 1975. The lecture is financially supported by the Martin White Memorial Trust. Uh, we're very grateful for their enduring support to organize this important lecture series. Martin White was one of the outstanding LSE scholars at home both in the fields of history and international relations, and he's closely associated with the so-called English School of International Relations. He was born in November 1913. Education-wise, he read modern history at Hartford College, Oxford. In 1937, he assumed a position at the Royal Institute of International Affairs where he contributed to various research programs, including British imperial policy, South Africa, the UK's strategic interests, and ocean routes. From 1938, he worked for a while as a school teacher before returning to Oxford in the early 1940s to conduct research on colonial uh, constitutions. After the war in 1946, he again conducted research at Chatham House where he was thought out to then take a role 
as special correspondent to cover the early sessions of the United Nations for the Observer newspaper. He returned to Chatham House in 1947, where he worked once more with Arnold Toynbee, who was then the director of studies at Chatham House and a leading researcher on international history. In the late 1940s, Martin White, to his delight, I'm sure, was offered an academic post at LSE. He was appointed as reader in the IR department and stayed there from 1949 until 1961. During this time, he was also invited to participate in meetings of the very prestigious British Committee on the Theory of International Politics, headed by the Cambridge historian Herbert Butterfield. Having in the mid-1950s already turned down more than one job offer that would have seen him leave the school, he departed LSE to take up a chair of history at the University of Sussex, where he worked until his untimely death in July 1972. Martin White is the author of several key works. At the very least, IR students today will most likely still engage with his essay, Why is there no international theory? And of course, his famous lectures on the three traditions of realism, rationalism, and revolutionism. However, his intellectual legacy includes many further writings, such as his works on the balance of power and international order or different forms of legitimacy. It is said that Martin White was a perfectionist. Seemingly for that reason, though Martin's White monograph, Power Politics, was originally published already in 1946, other key books bearing his name, such as Systems of States, were published only after his death. Notably, however, White's many distinguished scholarly contributions were much discussed already in the 1970s and indeed continue to fascinate researchers, as evident in the recently published volume edited by David Yost, which is entitled Martin White International Relations and Political Philosophy. As departmental organizer of this year's Martin White Memorial Lecture, I had the pleasure of rereading some of his impressive essays and deciding on tonight's speaker. In the end, given Martin White's interest in great power politics, war, and different motives for war and international order, I thought it would be opportune to focus on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its international consequences and to invite Roy Allison to deliver the memorial lecture this academic year. Professor Allison is one of the most distinguished scholars I know working on Russia and questions of international security and order. He's based at St. Anthony's, Oxford, where he is professor of Russian and Eurasian international relations. He's also the director of the Russian and European Studies Center. Professor Allison previously held academic posts at the universities of Southampton and Birmingham, as well as London School of Economics. Indeed, for several years, until 2011, Roy was a colleague of mine in the international relations department. Like Martin White, Roy Ellison was in the past not only a faculty member of the IR department, he also worked for Chatham House. In his case, between 1993 and 2005, as head of their Russia and Eurasia program. Professor Ellison has also been a visiting scholar at Moscow State University and Brookings Institution. As part of his interventions into shaping foreign policy making, he has served as specialist advisor to the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee 
and Defense Committee and the House of Lords European Union Committee. Roy Ellison is the author of many academic articles and books. His book publications include Putin's Russia and the Enlarged Europe as co-author, as well as Russia, the West and Military Intervention, published in 2013. The latter provides a unique interdisciplinary study of the Russian approach to military interventions. I presume the next book is already in the offing, but maybe we'll hear more about that. Yeah? Roy, it is a great honor to have you as speaker here this evening and to have you deliver the 2023 Martin White Memorial Lecture. Welcome back. I now hand over to Federico. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. You have the floor. <laughs> great pleasure to return to the LSE among familiar colleagues, familiar surroundings. I've often been on the other side uh, listening to interesting and diverse talks by speakers from all over the world. So I'm most grateful to the Department of International Relations for this opportunity to deliver this year's Martin White Memorial Lecture. Um, it's a real honour. And as Federica mentioned, I think it is fitting as we approach next week's anniversary on the beginning of Russia's full-scale attack on Ukraine to discuss its deeper implications for international order. Much depends on this. Russia's war of choice against Ukraine and, we should emphasize, against the Ukrainian people is a stark challenge, in my view, at two levels. First, against foundational principles of international order since 1945, for states at large, as understood by the United Nations Charter, and secondly at the regional level, for what we might call the European security order. And I'm going to consider both dimensions, uh, but focus rather more on the first. And my core argument rests on enduring insights of Martin White and the English School of International, studying international relations, the English school tradition, and that is that the defense of Ukrainian sovereignty also represents the defense of a normative framework to regulate state relations of profound and enduring importance. My focus is on globally accepted principles rather than what's often called the liberal rule-based international order. And certainly this liberal order uh, with its more human-focused view of the rights and responsibilities of states and it's, it's questioning of the hard shell of state sovereignty and association with liberal democratic choice is very much at stake, it's very much involved and it's helped mobilize an extraordinary degree of Western support for Ukraine, including states well beyond the core transatlantic community. However, I would argue that Russian and Western states have long had differences over interpreting international norms and defining the application of international law uh, and to some extent, this predates the Putin presidencies, and we could even call this normal contestation between states. In a way, it's the push and pull over customary international law of efforts by states to codify their preferences. However, Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 formed something of a watershed. And we know now it wasn't a singular transgression, but prefigured Russia's attack on Ukraine last year. And with that attack, Russia's relations with Western states have plunged from confrontational to increasingly adversarial as Russia pursues territorial revanchism through war. And in the words of Chancellor Olaf Scholz, this represents a Zeitenwender, 
an epochal tectonic shift. By annexing Crimea and then attacking Ukraine <coughs> and taking an extreme step of seeking further to annex Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia, Russia has directly, and with hardly any disguise, set itself against the core global UN Charter prohibition against territorial expansion through the use of force, against enlarging a state through territorial aggrandizement. Indeed, Putin aims at the destruction of Ukrainian statehood itself, challenging the very core of state sovereignty. And in simple terms, to me, this compels the question whether Russia has shifted fundamentally from some acceptance, with qualifications, of the power of international rules to reliance on the rule of power and military force, at least to the extent of its military reach. Now, if so, such militarily charged realpolitik has deep consequences for Ukraine, its neighbors, Europe, and the wider international system. Now, at this point, I'm not siding with the tradition of neorealism in international relations scholarship. Um, this would tend to deflect questions, uh, these questions and refer to the enduring effects of state, relative state military power in shaping the policy of states in general and even to the point of embarking on war. Uh, rather, my view is there has been a paradigmatic shift in Russian policy. And Russian aggression against Ukraine is more than just some kind of primordial realism and fixation on military power by the Russian state that's come bubbling to the surface. My position begins with the claim that norms, uh, standards of appropriate conduct between states, and core principles of international relations consensually agreed matter. They help avert a relapse to earlier eras of the brutal exercise of power between states. And significantly, the evidence suggests uh, to me, uh, Moscow understood this in recent decades well, at least until 2014. And this is despite clashes between Russian and Western states over the growing body of human-focused norms of the post-1991 liberal rule-based international order. Rather, in arguing that 2022 was a decisive shift, I refer to the so-called uh, level of so-called pluralist normative regulation identified by English school scholars already in Cold War years. And this unequivocally prescribed aggressive war and annexation. Now, to explain further, develop this argument, we can refer to insights from the work of Martin White and his followers. And it's the international society tradition that brings together these scholars, the view that states have rights and duties as understood in the minds of their decision makers. So in their volume, Diplomatic Investigations, published in 1966, Martin White and Herbert Buff Butterfield affirmed that it is the principles of prudence and moral obligation which have held together the international society of states throughout its history and still hold it together. White recognized that sovereignty was at the core of this. And it's this reci reciprocal re recognition of sovereignty and its logical extension, the norm of non-intervention, that lies at the heart of a relatively thin level of regulation in this tradition of thought. It's what we could call a compact of coexistence, and it allows states to agree on the need for undergirding principles of international order, despite their competing view of international justice. The renowned English school scholar Hedley Bull, who actually was an examiner of my doctoral thesis, built on Martin White's work in defining a 
pluralist conception of international society. He argued that states keep to the rules of sovereignty and non-intervention, not as realists would claim, just out of a sense of national interest, but also because these rules are seen by states as having both moral and legal authority. Now, Russia mostly and increasingly has adopted, a, say, a qualified pluralist, pluralist position. Uh, this has been easier for it to sustain in international society, including on norms related to the use of force, because of perspectives it shared in recent years with China, India, group of 77 developing countries and other states. However, since at least 2006, Moscow has been increasingly insistent that its voice should count seriously in global rulemaking. Its campaign for a world where privileged great powers, including Russia, collectively, and at least notionally equally, define the substance and normative underpinnings of the international order. And this resembles the original institutional logic of the United Nations Security Council, and it's reaffirmed and writ large in the contemporary setting. Moscow also talked the language of fixed core legal principles and the UN Charter, alongside this modern concept of great powers image. Now, Russian state practice, uh, like the conduct of other major states at times, was selective in its interpretation application of law. But Moscow seemed to accept that transgression incurs material and reputational costs, as well as risking the wider framework of constraint and overall beneficial regulation offered by such a system. Now, given this background, Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 was a shocking affront to the international system, and it veered towards what Martin White and Hedley Bull had acknowledged as a realist or Hobbesian expression of international politics. I and mean, essentially, after World War II, the great powers endorsed a set of norms to prevent annexation and colonialism, which severely curtailed such efforts. Russia's new attack on Ukraine in 2022 eclipses the, the Crimean challenge. And indeed, permitting Russia to seize more Ukrainian land would not only radically undermine Ukrainian sovereignty, but also threaten to unravel the post-World War to international system more generally. And preventing this, of course, is a strategic task using countervailing power. But the UN Charter system, lying at the apex of the post-1945 global rule-based system, also depends on the task of exposing and resisting gross violations of the Charter and the forced claims linked to those violations, and especially by prominent permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, such as Russia. These claims can't be allowed to displace the core prohibition against aggressive war. And this obligation is, this prohibition is, is a peremptory legal obligation, in legal terms, a just Coggins norm from which no derogation is permitted. Now, I turn to these claims, considering first Russia's use of force, uh, and I'll run through these quite briefly uh, and then turn to some of the political uh, arguments. I mean, I think that Russia's attack on Ukraine was an unusually transparent act of military aggression and violation of the prohibition of the use of force uh, of the UN Charter. And as for the recognition of the separatist republics in Donbass, uh, there are a number of ways this can be confirmed as illegal, but I think it's enough to note that Russia had sustained these separatist 
regions with arms and logistical support and troops through armed intervention, which is a grave violation of law since 2014. And, and so the illegality of creating new states from these entities arises from the violation of the norm prohibiting the use of force. And as for other states, uh, the obligation not to recognize the fruits of a serious violation is a firm part of the international constitutional order. And territorial acquisition resulting from the threat or the use of force cannot be recognized as legal. A core Russian claim to justify its attack was that Russia acted on the basis of individual self-defense. I mean, this is the, 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 the basic, basic um, uh, qualification um, uh, that is permitted there in the UN Charter. Um, in three respects, Russia claimed, Russia claimed. First, responding to a threat by NATO's eastwards enlargement. Secondly, responding to a threat from Ukraine to Russian state territory. And third, protecting Russian people abroad, and presumably in the first instance, Russian passport holders in Ukrainian territory. Well, the wider claim of NATO threat was directed at future threats. Russia argued it was compelled to respond against. But no evidence was presented of an imminent NATO threat in February 2022. And so it didn't invoke anticipatory self-defense, even if we credit this rather contested notion uh, with some legal basis. And unable to present any evidence, Russian language in February 2022 implied more the need to take preemptive military action. But again, no evidence was offered. Um, and anyway, preemptive defense uh, has no standing in contemporary international law or juridical opinion. And later, Russian rhetoric expanded this notion of preemption at times into the broad notion of preventive war. Uh, and this evokes a kind of pre-UN uh, Charter-based broad permissive environment for state aggression. The claim that Russia acted to protect its citizens in Ukraine merges, in my view, with political rhetoric. Um, it's connected to the Russian state practice of mass passportization in separatist regions. However, a self-defense claim founded on the need to protect a large number of nationals, which lacked such citizenship until recently, is not convincing at any time. And when you add the legal requirements of necessity and proportionality, uh, this basis for Russia's invasion collapses. Beyond these kind of what I could call quasi-legal claims, a large part of the body of justification Russia used for the attack on Ukraine has been essentially political rhetoric. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of aspects. I mean, for example, Russia's call for the denazification of Ukraine. And I mean, essentially, this reflects a determination to enforce regime change and the political subjugation of the Ukrainian state. Uh, Putin claimed that the political beneficiaries of the Maidan revolution coup in 2014 could not represent the Ukrainian state and their Nazi political ideology effectively justified their replacement by external force. And Russia uses this kind of specious Nazi imagery in an effort to evoke fervor against the enemy in the Russian domestic population, perhaps analogous to that during the Great Patriotic War, or at least that's the idea. Alongside such political rhetoric, Putin has used an increasingly fervent, or say, civilizationist, or civilizational rhetoric. And this essentializes Russia as a historic culture and territory, which encompasses territorial space of earlier periods. 
So Putin has invoked the notion of historic justice to justify the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And this is now, again, at the core of Russia's efforts to legitimize its actions in Ukraine. It undermines the standing of the state and the international treaties defining contemporary Ukraine and expresses a central myth that Ukraine has always lacked what is termed real statehood. It clashes with the core principle of the sovereign equality of UN members as defined in the UN Charter. And in fact, Ukraine kept its membership in the UN when the USSR dissolved, having been a founding UN member as the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Putin's historical claims were fully aired beforehand in his essay on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians in July 2021. It's, a, it's a, an interesting read uh, as a kind of prefiguring what, will, what, what came, and I'd encourage you to have a look at it. Here, we find the Russians and Ukrainians are presented as one people. That is, Ukrainians are Russians, not the other way around. Um, the essay is part of the required curriculum of all members of the Russian armed forces, including those currently in combat in Ukraine. And an intention, in my view, is to ingrain a narrative of an imagined common people and territory centered on the notion of historic Russian lands now being regathered. The territorial ambition is extensive. Beyond previous proclaimed commitments to protect ethnic Russians or Russian citizens or the loose category of compatriots, this is because Tsarist era Russian territories extended in places further than Soviet borders and including in principle somewhere like Finland, which was a grand duchy uh, in the uh, Tsarist Empire. Since attacking Ukraine, Putin has compared the prevailing situation to Tsar Peter the Great's capture of territory from Sweden in the 18th century, an achievement which, like the Ukraine offensive, he's termed returning and reinforcing Russian lands. We're returning what's ours, Putin affirms, historically, of course. And in Putin's speak, at the end of 2022, in annexing Ukrainian regions, newly incorporated territories have appeared for Russia. And this expresses an implicit doctrine under which Russia can claim back all the territories that sometime belonged to it or were included in its sphere of influence. In another mental frame, Putin accuses Ukraine of being, quote, reduced to a colony with a puppet regime, with a government which no longer acts in a national capacity and by implication lacks any rights. This claim that Ukraine has been forcibly colonized by Western forces, that the Ukrainian administration lacks any sovereign authority as a political clique is a fiction, of course, that could be equally applied to other post-Soviet states with close relations with the West. I'm very well aware of this. Now, the challenge deepened in September 2022 with Russia's annexation of the Ukrainian provinces of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia through rushed fraudulent referenda claimed to represent the will of the people. And then Putin signed treaties of accession of the regions to the Russian Federation, praising their people for their determination to return to their true historical homeland, a choice supposedly denied them in 1991. And if you look at all this, Russia's revanche's discourse now expresses essentially the terminology of conquest and is accompanied by Putin's decision since last July to extend a fast-track scheme to obtain Russian citizens citizenship to all 
the citizens of Ukraine, regardless of whether they reside in areas under Russian military occupation or not. Now, the longer-term significance of these claims about historic justice, Russian historic regions, depends on how widely they come to be shared among Russian elites and public opinion. Um, Putin is pitching, clearly, for widespread support of the kind he received after the annexation of Crimea. But it's far from clear that the Russian commitment to this notion of uh, Novorossiya, the regions controlled uh, to the south of, of Ukraine, um, resonates within Russia in a similar way to that Crimea annexation, and especially in conditions of protracted war uh, and ever more costly military struggle with Kiev. And beyond the in controlled media, indoctrination over the Russian claims is pervading Russian schools and university teaching. But it will take time to become embedded, while Russian effective control of the annexed regions remains precarious. So let's now consider some of the consequences of this Russian rhetoric for the international system at large. But I think I begin with the audiences it targets. First of all, there is the domestic audience, um, public elites, but as I just noted, this may not be entirely receptive. Uh, secondly, there's an audience in Ukraine, in those regions defined as natural components of the Russian world. But thirdly, there is an audience of non-Western states, many with cordial relations with Moscow, and I'll say a little bit more about this. Putin's played to the gallery of the non-West with his open disdain for rules defined by what he calls the collective West. The next step is to frame the operation in Ukraine as a contribution to liberating the world from the neo-colonial oppression of the West. His speech on the annexations in September 2022 is littered with accusations of Western powers as colonizers, characterized by despotism, apartheid, and racism. And Putin even declaims that Russia's leading what he calls an emerging essentially an emancipatory anti-colonial movement. Um, uh, now, this is a pitch to limit global non-Western criticism of Russian actions, of what is an effort, effectively, at recolonization of Ukraine. And this should be recognized. It ought to be recognized by U UN member states. Now, sort of at risk of laboring the point somewhat, the particularly egregious quality of Russian action in 2022 is the breach of this foundational norm against territorial conquest the use of force for territorial expansion. The norm expressed a recognition by the UN Charter founders that most conflicts previously were driven by territorial acquisition. Now, in Russia's new inverted logic, respect for territorial integrity is contingent on states, quote, representing the entire population of their countries. So, Russia's own reading of the representativeness of the Kiev administration overrides the sovereignty of Ukraine. And Moscow's offensive against Ukraine seems to aim at the destruction of Ukrainian sovereign independence and statehood itself, an outcome we could call state death. If the rest of the world would accede to this, it's difficult to imagine the principle of territorial integrity acting further as an effective constraint against the forceful resolution of territorial disputes and the goal of territorial conquest. The prospects will be especially bleak for the independence of small post-Soviet states outside alliances which try to avoid close alignment with Russian policy preferences. 
Now, this scenario, I think, is made more thinkable by Russia's disturbing effort to bond with China as supposed co-creators of the contemporary international order. Moscow plays on China's confrontation with the United States over the future of Taiwan to avert Chinese criticism of Russia's war of aggression. Last August, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov met his Chinese counterpart and praised their strategic partnership as one of the pillars of the movement for the triumph of international law. And he countered this to rules he called invented by the United States and its satellites. And as surreally, he referred to working with China in the recently established Group of Friends of the United Nations Charter. And the, UN, the UN system has remained a central site for what we can call discursive power in international communications over the war. But effective action in the UN Security Council has been hamstrung by Russia's veto power. And Russia's blocked Security Council condemnations of its actions, as well as referral of its actions against Ukraine for the crime of aggression to the international criminal court. On the other hand, uh, UN General Assembly resolutions have explicitly condemned the Russian invasion in, in, in categorical terms, uh, with the great majority uh, in support. Uh, and there is going to be uh, another vote uh, next week um, scheduled, which uh, will probably have just as high uh, uh, a level of condemnation. Um, General Assembly votes have no uh, enforcement mechanism, but they, they do express a firm rejection by much of the globe, not China and India, which, which abstained, um, of Russia's principal claims. Uh, uh, Moscow's effort to try and turn the tables and argue that it is itself a victim of American and NATO hegemonic designs or, or some kind of imperialist war has limited appeal. However, a mixed group of states, including major G20 states, opted to abstain in these General Assembly votes. And many of them appear to interpret Russia's assault on Ukraine as a war of northern industrial states against each other, a war of particularistic interests underpinned by US power. They view Russia as enforcing European annexations. Uh, and to the extent that they accept that Western powers are embroiled in a conflict with Russia over principles of international order, they view this as applying to a regional European context. In other words, and this is concerning, a good many non-Western states seem reluctant to accept that the unraveling of core rules through warfare in the European theater represents a threat in other world regions, uh, whether for regions potentially vulnerable to the future Chinese use of force or to other territorial conflicts. I think this is significant. There are also worrying implications for the operation and constraining role of international humanitarian law. Uh, one issue is the accountability of core crimes against international humanitarian law and the crime of aggression itself. Now, it's uncertain how far investigation of these could be pursued by the International Criminal Court uh, where, or a separate ad hoc uh, international tribunal or some other dedicated investigative institution, for example, the UN General Assembly or the Human Rights Council. You know, all these options suffer in the face of obstruction by a Security Council member, Russia, and other limitations. Um, for example, neither Russia nor Ukraine is a member of the International uh, Criminal Court. Uh, and Russia was suspended from the UN Human Rights Council in April last year 
and it won't engage with this body. Uh, and Russia's also resolved to end the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights in the country. I mean, in fact, Russia's actions in, in Ukraine, although extreme, in my view, they repeat a systematic effort by Moscow over many years to evade the restrictions that international humanitarian law imposes on warfare. Uh, Russia simply denies the facts uh, that are the basis uh, of allegations made. I mean, even when it accepts that international humanitarian law applies de jure, uh, it's failed to engage in discourse on the law, such as offering counter-arguments. Uh, overall, Russia's actions in its responses to allegations of crimes in Ukraine, I think, form a threat to the deterrent effect of international humanitarian law at large. However, uh, the war has also revealed the strength of international humanitarian law, its accountability processes. It's spawned a multi-layered range of investigative and prosecutorial efforts. Uh, and the issue has particular relevance in Europe since the last protracted interstate European war in which the USSR itself was subject to grave and very extensive human rights violations, gave rise to contemporary understandings about crim criminal responsibility for wartime acts and the evolution of norms around this. So I'll turn to the final part of my lecture now, and that is a shift from the level of the international system to the regional European security order, and to outline some of the grave consequences of Russian claims and action over the war for this region. I think the first question here, and I'm going to set out a series of questions, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to offer any definitive answers, um, but we can engage in discussion, is what will be the standing of the fundamental principles of the 1975 CSC conference, the Helsinki Final Act, which codified respect for borders, territorial integrity, and the means to constrain military actions. And already before Russia's last-scale attack on Ukraine, Russian experts had proposed a revision of the Helsinki Final Act, centered on Ukraine, which no doubt was intended to codify some measure of Russian control of Ukrainian sovereignty. And what about the principles of key post-Cold War agreements, such as the Paris Charter of November, November 1990, and the bodies such as the OSC, the Organization Security and Cooperation in Europe after that? Are they beyond recovery as constraints on future Russian conduct? I mean, to my mind, it's difficult to conceive of a new settlement to re-enshrine these core principles, if that is possible, if it's, if it's possible at all, that doesn't rely on Western defense guarantees to deter their renewed violation. I mean, I think, to be blunt, in the medium term, none of the security architecture Western states work with can be with Russia. It has to be against Russia as the war continues in Ukraine. The core relationship most likely will continue to be mutual alliance against mutual alliance, if we view the Russia-Belarus uh, relationship as an alliance, and the recent news would uh, tend to confirm that. We are reverting to older adversarial forms of constraint centered on deterrence and containment. And eventually some new modus vivendi with Russia will have to be found, um, some way for the European Union and NATO states to manage relations with what could well become an entrenched militaristic state. This is a bleak prospect. The emphasis has to be on limiting dangerous escalation in Russian-Western relations and eventually moving towards deconfliction and other risk 
reduction measures. And this has to be a priority, even as defense of Ukrainian sovereignty continues. In other words, even if core precepts of international law or the principles defining the European security order fail to, to constrain Russian military aggression, there must be ways to regulate the danger of a wider conflict. And I've been thinking about this, and I was drawn back to the mid and late 1980s. And this was a period of the late Cold War, when the dangers of escalation of regional conflicts in non-European theatres, the Middle East, Africa, Asia, threatened to pull the Soviet Union and Western powers into a direct clash, especially in grey areas of overlapping interests or ambiguous articulation of interests. Now, arguably, a similar grey area has formed between Russia and Western states around Ukraine and other post-Soviet states on the borderlands of Europe. In the previous Cold War setting, the American political scientist Alexander George conceptualized the notion of tacit codes of conduct or norms of competition as a way of limiting the risks of dangerous escalation of nuclear armed powers. Now, I elaborated this idea in a book I co-edited, published just as the Cold War began to unravel, uh, but I pulled up a shelf and looked at this, and these tacit codes are unwritten rules that codify existing practice and build incrementally upon it. They exist in place of formal treaty regulation. Now, they're not legal, not quasi-legal, but they're analogous to common law, which develops through experience and offers useful benchmarks uh, or useful precedents. And in the way they existed in the 1980s, they were rules of prudence rather than law or morality. A core element long recognized in Cold War diplomacy, and it was emphasized by Stephen Kaplan in his extensive study in 1981, Diplomacy of Power, was a so-called fundamental rule of prudence. This was an absolute prohibition of any armed clash between the two sides uniformed military personnel, though there were a few well-hushed-up lapses during the Cold War. But this rule is very relevant at this time, given the grey area over the threshold for Western military support of Ukraine, beyond which Western states would legally become parties to the military conflict. Now, the controversy on this issue is reflected in Russian accusations that uh, Western states are in a proxy war with Russia through Ukraine. And this claim seems to center on how far Ukraine's military defense is done in operational coordination with its Western partners. Now, of course, Western states uh, can refer to the collective right of self-defense within the meaning of Article 5 of the UN Charter. And under this, other states can lawfully assist Ukraine against Russia's armed attack, providing they act according to necessity and proportionality. Yet Russia is paying scant attention to international law, which is exactly why rules of prudence, what I call tacit codes of conduct or norms of competition, become important. Their role, at least in time of war, is a minimal one, to act as guardrails against vertical escalation, which could lead to the use of nuclear arms, or horizontal escalation, especially in the form of conflict spreading into NATO territory, which would trigger Article 5 collective defense response. And it seems, uh, looking at the situation, that some such tacit codes are developing piecemeal. 
Uh, for example, in persistent Western efforts to prevent the use of Western arms against Russia's sovereign territory, and that is the Russian territory recognized by the United Nations. To identify these codes, these codes of conduct requires close study of the communications between Russia, Ukraine, and Western states, uh, what we could call their strategic and discursive signaling. Particular forms of language and, and notions are important, uh, such as reference to so-called red lines or parties of the conflict or escalation risk. However, it's very important that Western states make clear that rules of prudence, those which are developing, should not be done in some condominium arrangement with Moscow at the expense of Ukrainian sovereignty. That is to say, not at the expense of Ukrainian statehood in an effort to keep the escalation risk low. We have to accept the whole conflict is inherently risky and Putin seeks to gain through threats that seek to exploit the lower risk threshold of some major European states. And my whole argument is that the defense of Ukraine cannot be viewed just instrumentally. It's much more than the clash of power. Rules of prudence can't displace the core objective of preventing Russia from its land grab by force, with the grave challenge to international order this represents. Finally, when thinking about implications of the war and the role of norms and law for the European security order, there is one paramount uh, question, and I think this uh, really requires a separate lecture, a sort of speculative lecture, uh, uh, perhaps for the future, uh, and that is how can an eventual political and diplomatic settlement of the Russia-Ukraine war be achieved in treaty language and sustained if trust in Russia's commitment to agreements and its acceptance of Ukrainian statehood has collapsed. The wording of the revised Russian constitution blocks meaningful negotiations. It forbids Russia from negotiating its territorial borders. In other words, from negotiating what Russia defines as its territory, including last year's annexations. While Ukraine, in turn, will not abandon its legally determined territory. And beyond this impasse, the overarching requirement is, over time, for Ukraine to have its sovereignty irrevocably recognized by Moscow. But this is difficult to conceive while Putin remains in power, at least. As for the sincerity of Russian commitment to treaties, I mean, all I can offer in a sentence is that deterrence and Western security guarantees will be essential to underpin any eventual agreement if that is achievable. Those guarantees will reflect the reality that the territory of Ukraine will certainly be a new front line in some shape or form in the coming European security order. And my headline conclusion overall is that Ukraine has become a core site, perhaps the core site, of the fracturing of efforts to maintain minimal pluralist rules about accepted state conduct and the use of force in the international system. Moscow presents transparently revanchist irredentist claims to justify its war of occupation annexation and support is mobilized on the grounds of redressing past wrongs and this revives the specter of a pre-UN charter world and at the regional level Russian aggression and its rhetoric has shattered hopes among western states of working collectively with Russia in Europe of working with a narrow but substantive common understanding about core norms and legal principles. 
Now, of course, a normative basis for a European security order embracing just the European Union and NATO states remains perfectly possible, and there is a powerful impulse now to include the Ukrainian state in that order, but Russia has excluded itself. As a result, in the medium term, in this continent at least, Russian-Western relations will be defined largely in terms of deterrence, containment, <coughs> conflict management. In other words, the visions of the past, whether a common European home, continent whole and free, wider Europe, these have all collapsed into a new and dangerous era of polarization and risk. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roy. I mean, uh, this is, uh, I wouldn't say that uh, I could see a happy ending to this story, but I mean, uh, it was uh, really interesting to see how you systematize everything. Um, we are moving to the Q&A, uh, but uh, I'll uh, abuse the power of the chair and uh, I'll get started. Um, because, uh, I mean, I was really intrigued when, uh, uh, you know, at the start of your uh, presentation, you said that this, there is a long-term difference between Western countries and Russia. And then you, you, you marked it, you know, the watershed was actually 2014 uh, with the annexation of Crimea, Crimea. You went back to 2006, you mentioned 2008. So somehow, I mean, should, I mean, my area of expertise is uh, uh, European foreign policy. And I wonder if European countries should have seen this coming. Um, was there writing on the wall? Was there a point where they should have stopped believing that cooperation was the way forward? In a way, you know, there is a bigger lesson uh, out there. Before, uh, the, you know, February 22, uh, everyone was um, kind of mentally preparing for this confrontation with China. Uh, so, I mean, it, is there something that we can learn from what has happened? Well, thank, thank you, Federica. Um, of course, it's easy to be deterministic looking back from 2022 and to think of a kind of automaticity to the events. But we do see a kind of collapsing of you know, thresholds of violation from 2008 in the recognition, really carving out and recognition of new states in Abkhazia and South Ossetia through to the initial annexation, through to these events. And I think there was a strong temptation uh, for, for Western politicians to see each of these in some way as, as sui generis, as a singular, uh, somehow exceptional, uh, and to try and revive relations with, with, with Russia. I mean, it's because the alternative uh, seemed to be uh, unthinkable at, at the time. Uh, you could see this with the reset policy, of course, after 2008 uh, with Obama. Uh, and there was an attempt, uh, a serious attempt to do this with President Medvedev. Um, incidentally, this, uh, this president, I, I remember from that time, he, he, he was in uh, LSE address, you may remember this, Federica. Uh, it, it's, it's a time from the past, a very, very different uh, outlook. It was felt at the time that there was something, at least I know in, in, the, in the Foreign Office, about a 20% chance that, in fact, he would impose his stamp of authority on, uh, on Russia, 
uh, rather than Putin who remained in the wings. This didn't happen. Um, and the, it, you could see from the time Putin returned in 2012, uh, then he was building up, I think, towards some kind of effort to, to really push back. And Ukraine has really become an obsession of his. Um, uh, the response to the 2014 annexation uh, clearly was inadequate. Uh, but in order to take that kind of collective response, <coughs> one aspect was, of course, the energy uh, dimension uh, and the, uh, the, the extent to which uh, West European states were, had that dependence. This was a, a trump card as far as Putin was concerned to, to prevent and limit any kind of strong uh, reaction uh, to, to Russian policies. Uh, 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 so it, it, the, the problem is a collect, how, how, to, how to collectively manage a response. Um, uh, and you know, the EU is an intergovernmental organization with, with many different opinions. Uh, it, it took a, a shock of this order, late, very late, to be able to, to pull, pull, that, pull that together. Um, so uh, I would say from 2014, uh, this was the time really to, to act on I mean, the coordination Putin's interpretation of the, the pre-positioning of a, a tripwire response in Eastern Europe was that, in fact, this will, there would be no serious resistance. Thank you. Right, time for you to uh, raise questions, comments, uh, uh, thoughts. Um, Two uh, rules apply. The first one, try to be concise and to the point so that we can factor in as many uh, as possible. The second one, please introduce yourself so that we create a sort of a sense of uh, uh, community uh, and uh, we know who's uh, where. If you are an LSC student, give us uh, your uh, program. Uh, if uh, you are from outside the LSC, tell us uh, uh, if you have uh, a specific organization that you are uh, working with. So we start from the very top over there. I can see uh, three questions and then uh, back to you, Roy, and then back. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Um, I have two questions. My name is Katerina Dallacura. I'm an associate professor in the IMF department. Um, I have two questions. The first one is, is Putin's attempt to present this war not as a war of aggression, but as, as an irredentist war, sort of, sort of uh, bringing back uh, people who should belong to Russia back to Russia? Is this really... Um, a tacit acknowledgement of the rules of the international order rather than an attack on the international order. In other words, um, he's not accepting the right to sovereignty of the Ukrainians. He's saying they are our people and this is why we've gone in. And is this actually saying that uh, sovereignty should apply in all cases, but in this one there is an exception? Do, do, you, see, do you see the drift of my... Uh, question. The second one is, what is the end game? 
um, I, I cannot believe, really, that Putin believed that this was going to be easy. And uh, I just wondered if you have any more insight about how he was thinking it would end. Thank you. I, uh, at the very top, uh, uh, there on the left, uh, yep. Yes, a gentleman with the hat. Yeah, and then. Well, um, I have a problem. Could you possibly disambiguate the title, International Order? What international order is it? That takes us back to 1936, both for Abyssinia and China. What happened in Manchuria? What happened in Ethiopia? It was not part of international. The Berlin Conference 1884, international. So would you please disambiguate what you mean by international? Thank you. Thank you. Fair point. Please. Uh, thank you, Professor Allison, uh, for taking the time. Uh, my name is Nicola Stellini, uh, <laughs> professor, uh, um, LSE, Master of Science in Global Politics. Uh, actually, I want to attach my question to the one of Professor Bicchi. Do you think there are writings on the wall that we should see for the future for more than Russia, other countries? I'm referring especially to China, because beyond South Ossetia and, Ab and Abkhazia, there was the famous, infamous Munich speech. and. I think that China is signaling something similar, but I would like your opinion. Thank you. Roy, would you like to take these three, four? Thank you. Um, well, I think the, and the irredentism, the arguments are in the nature, in the way that they're presented, don't apply exclusively to Ukraine. Uh, they apply to the people's that were once under Russian rule, including Imperial Russian rule. This is a very broad category. Uh, Putin's, Ukraine is special in some respects, but it's in a, in a tier of change that is, is called for, uh, for the revising the order within that post-Soviet region. Essentially it is for recovery of much of that territory and beyond. Um, there is no serious attempt to present the Russian case in arg any kind of arguable legal or quasi-legal language, that part of it. Uh, and that at least one might expect. Uh, the arguments about self-determination of peoples and so forth is only goes so far, uh, as we know, in fact, that language of the United Nations applied to cases which the cases arising from uh, decolonization and, and not others. Uh, so I, I, I do see it as something separate. I mean, I think what you imply is that Russia is still holding to those international its basic principles outside the region in its language in in region in the wider international system but of course all states can do that uh, they can uh, act uh, in violation of core principles they can they can walk into other states in their in their in their region and and, and still <coughs> claim uh, those wider uh, adherence to international norms um, so I'm not convinced um, the the end game, uh, the end game depends on what point I think one, one, 
one's looking at. At, the, at February 2022, uh, I am firmly convinced that Putin expected to be able to take effective control, subjugation of the Ukrainian state as a whole, and that uh, this was, this is reflected in those, uh, you might think, wildly ambitious uh, demands in autumn uh, 2021 uh, for uh, NATO to uh, pull back from Eastern Europe, uh, all its military infrastructure and so forth. The image I think he had in his mind and the general staff had was that with Ukraine effectively uh, controlled in the way that Crimea was, you know, Crimea very quickly uh, became another uh, military bastion, old Soviet-era bases and so on were revived for power projection. Russia would have this forward projection, its capability from eastern, eastern Ukraine, uh, sorry, western Ukraine, and they would then enter into a negotiation about uh, withdrawals and, and, and uh, uh, various kinds of conflict limitation, Eastern Europe, Ukraine. Um, but of course that was never realizable because Russia never had an occupation force. It had some kind of invasion force. Um, so, but, but I think that that belief was there and it's very difficult to understand really the nature of that negotiation that took place or the Russian demands late in 2021 otherwise. Um, now, in the current situation, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's much more of a holding game. It's, so Russia would wish to, I think, uh, hold uh, southern Ukraine. Um, now, up beyond the, uh, all the, the zones in the Black Sea currently, plus a wider zone, all of Luhansk and Donetsk uh, provinces. And that will provide the means in the future to progress further again. So in the same way as Crimea after 2014 uh, became, as I said, the military bastion, and it was used in 2022 as the core military source to uh, move into southern Ukraine. So South Ukraine very rapidly was occupied because of the forces in Crimea. Russia would have that capacity in the future. It would maintain a stranglehold effectively on the Ukrainian economy because of the Black Sea ports, and there would have been, there would be the potential to move onto Odessa province and Transnistria uh, into Moldova if circumstances permit. So this would be, uh, this would be a very uh, desirable state from, from the Russian perspective. Um, beyond that, I mean, what, what we hear is from Lavrov and others is that uh, this is about uh, reworking an international order more generally. Um, I interpret that as efforts still to revive that negotiation uh, or, or those demands about uh, limiting NATO control within Europe, forward projection. Uh, however, I regard that, that kind of thinking now as quite fanciful. Um, uh, with the international order, uh, the international order, the international rules, territorial integrity, ha are violated in numerous instances. Of course, it's happened also during the Cold War period uh, in developing countries. It's, it's continued to happen um, country against country. Uh, and at times, uh, law has been, uh, the interpretation of law by major powers as well, has moved beyond the arguable, I would say. Uh, and this is what I studied in my book. However, what is singular about this, and that's where I put my emphasis is territorial, this territorial aggrandizement, the actual expanding your 
territorial zone at the expense of neighbours uh, and through forceful means, through force. Um, and you could, this helps explain the, how, why the international reaction was so united and strong when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And if you remember at that time in 1990, even the Soviet Union actually supported the United Nations Security Council veto in support of that operation. It was seen as a fundamental transgression. Um, uh, and that takes me to uh, the, 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 the last question, but really about China. I mean, China's watching, of course, this very carefully. Uh, I think China itself... Sorry, Manchuria. Yeah, so, so this is, I think, here, um, this is about the... Yeah, so, so, so okay. international humanitarian law is not, it's not even international humanitarian, this is essentially core human rights values, yes. Um, violated there, they're violated in Darfur, they're violated in, 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 in Bosnia. Of course, there are violations of this kind. Um, I think the, the question is how, how can states outside act against what they consider to be fundamental transgressions and violations of international law? Um, in the case of China, um, uh, the ability to uh, shift Chinese policy is relatively limited by states outside. But if you know, there has been a very, very strong reaction uh, within the United Nations and within uh, many states in the international community. Um, on, on China, um, China's very uh, concerned about the way in which Russia has been effectively empowering separatism, the principle of separatism. I mean, from 2008 onwards, and you can see this in various ways through, Russia, through Chinese coded language and, and the way what it will say and won't say. It has refused, of course, as other states recognize new states emerging Russia has created or carved out. Uh, there's no question of recognizing any of the annexed regions in, in Ukraine as, as states. Um, because it has its separatist concerns in, say, Xinjiang, as it sees it, in uh, Tibet, in Taiwan. Um, and it's watching this case very closely to see how uh, the extent to which West Western states will remain unified in trying to uh, not allow this transgression, not allow this violation Taking, taking of our territory to stand. Um, uh, at, okay. Let's move to a, 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 another round of uh, questions. Can we take uh, here the gentleman in the uh, front row and uh, the person behind, please? Thank you, Professor, for for your presentation. My name is Pavel. I am a student at Queen Mary University. And my question is, uh, what do you think? Can all of the challenges you mentioned to international order be overcome by the outcasting use of, use of force per se? So as far as I understand, UN Charter itself allows countries to use force in special circumstances. And even though, uh, and even if uh, some greater powers uh, don't rely on 
uh, UN charters and use uh, their force um, against uh, UN charters. Uh, UN, uh, international order cannot help prevent it. Uh, I mean, in case of, for instance, in United States, Nicaragua, we have seen the similar case when United States uh, used forces and International Court of Justice uh, condemned us, but no one could uh, help us. So what do you think, my question is, is it possible by any chance to uh, forget about use of force as a phenomenon and by using other methods to maintain international order? Thank you. Thank you. Person just behind the, uh, yep, uh, with a uh, red uh, jumper. Thank you. Hi. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Adelson, for your lecture. Uh, my name is Lana B. I'm a PhD candidate at the Department of International Relations and a research. My name is Lana B. I'm a PhD candidate at the Department of IR and a research officer at European Institute. Uh, so, my question is uh, about your opinion. In your personal opinion, uh, the explanation that Putin, Lavrov, Zahara, whatever, give to this full-scale war, is it the real motivation? Uh, what I mean by this, uh, Orange Revolution happened in 2004, then Yormadan and Crimea annexation in roughly 13-14, right? And then in eight years, the full-scale war started. Uh, and uh, Russia, Russian elites, they give some ideological explanation to this war. Uh, and you, when you start the war, you are supposed to give some explanation anyway, right? And to what extent, as the scholars of IR, uh, do we have the right to ignore maybe domestic politics or a kind of alternative explanation to what is going on right now. And I understand that maybe it's a broader philosophical question about how to approach international relations in general and should we pay attention to domestic politics or not. But uh, in your opinion, what is the role of domestic politics here? Thank, Thank you very much. You. Thank you. Very good point. Here in the middle with the ponytail. Hello, thank you very much for uh, your lecture. My name is Yuri, and uh, I'm a member of the public, no connection to uh, LSE. Uh, my question is, um, uh, a recurring topic in Russian propaganda is that uh, great powers don't lose wars. So even if uh, they happen to be uh, defeated conventionally, they can always resort to the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, at the same time, and they, this is really like becoming a very, very big topic in uh, pretty much every conversation. Now, uh, we know from experience that great powers lose wars all the time. Like, uh, uh, the US lost Vietnam, uh, France lost uh, in uh, Alger Algeria, and uh, there was also a plot uh, between uh, French military officials uh, um, that they wanted to use nuclear weapons uh, to avoid uh, uh, that outcome. Uh, USSR itself uh, lost in Afghanistan, and even Israel, which is widely considered to be a nuclear state, did not nuke Lebanon after um, uh, suffering defeat there. So uh, do you think that there is a, a possibility that Russia would also be able to accept even reluctantly such a defeat? Or 
we are dealing with the sunk cost fallacy uh, and uh, uh, the internal dynamics would not allow to uh, agree to this. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Roy. So there are um, very strict conditions on the use of force. Essentially, under the UN Charter, self-defense, individual and collective self-defense, uh, all the UN Security Council members, by agreement through resolution, also have enforcing authority. Uh, the reality is that major powers, those particularly those representing the Security Council, uh, have ways to avoid um, uh, UN Security Council authorization force, um, and small states will, uh, at times, continue to be subject to the, say, more arbitrary or uh, deliberate uh, use of forceful means by great power neighbors. If this is done occasionally and selectively, it doesn't undermine fundamentally the constraining effect of the wider system of regulation constraint. If, if it is more systematic or done more, more fundamental way, as Russia has, then it does. Um, we have to accept that state practice departs from international, uh, the, the desired international principal position. Uh, and there are many cases we can discuss. Uh, but the idea is that overall, and this is what I have presented it, and also going back to the English school notions, is that the beneficial benefits from having that wider regulatory framework uh, mean that even powerful states will not act simply out of self-interest uh, consistently. So, I mean, the case might be that, for example, in 2005, um, the United States, I mean, between 2001 and 2005, the United States would appear to be pushing forward a doctrine of uh, preemptive defense. Uh, you can see it in the language. What it was doing was uh, actually moving beyond the bounds of recognized customary law in this area. It was, now if other countries did not respond, then very likely that those boundaries would have moved. But there was strong, uh, there was strong pushback. Um, the only countries that did support that at the time were actually Russia, uh, I think Israel did. Um, for Russia, it was more about, I think, having a carte blanche to, to be able to perhaps strike at uh, Georgia, but also the sense of having similar uh, level of lack of constraint as the United States. But because of the pushback in the international community, this was dropped. So by 2005, in the national security strategy then, it, it was taken out. Um, so it fell back into line, even the most powerful state and system. Um, so I, I think we, we, we have to accept that there will be violations at times, but uh, in, in a system like this, uh, power still regulates and influences the way things work. Um, and so, of course, that was reflected, for example, in the case you mentioned in Nicaragua, which also led to a, a, a fundamental ruling and understanding about uh, on um, in the International Court of Justice. But it, you know, still, other external countries couldn't really get engaged. The question of the uh, motivations and domestic factors, yes, um, uh, I would agree that this is important. I mean, I think that for those who 
moving down from the level of analysis of international system, sort of foreign policy analysis, the understanding of foreign policy decisions, particular decisions at particular times, then you do have to look inside the state at the different kind of influences upon that, including decision-making processes of all kinds, the institutions, uh, the, um, the kinds of uh, groups of thinking uh, of, the, of, of, of those, those, those concerned. Um, now, in my writing, uh, in my, my, in my studies, it, it is, there is a relationship between domestic state order, let's call it, and international order, perceptions, Russian perceptions of international order, regional and domestic state order. And to put it bluntly and briefly, it's essentially that uh, stability trumps justice. So just as the Russian position and the international system is that, the notion of international stability, when Russia is as a controlling influence in the UN Security Council trumps international justice, these questions of international humanitarian law and so forth, the same applies at the domestic level. Uh, and we can, we can discuss further whether in fact you know, that affects political culture or other matters, you know, whether it's, it's in, in the contemporary setting it reflects Russia's own decision-making clique and elite with their backgrounds, particularly in security services and their view of the world. But that is how I, that that is how it is. So uh, it is very. I think this this, this idea of color revolutions and the uh, the notion of the, the people rising from below is seen as fundamentally threatening because it is against the whole. There is no democratic legitimacy. Legitimacy in that system is attempted through other other means, uh, and this fundamentally threatens that. So Ukraine, with you know, Zelensky is uh, Russian speaking. He's uh, someone who uh, has a, a wholly different outlook. Uh, he's someone who looks very credible in a way. You know, you could come across very well on the Russian social media if given the opportunity. Um, that is seen as a very threatening other to the Russian system. Uh, and I think that in terms of the timing of this, it was that. Ukraine was seen as slipping away really beyond Russian control. There was a thought, uh, I think, when Zelensky first came to power, that he was controllable, he was manipulable, uh, he was just, he had this background, you know, he wasn't a serious political entity. Uh, but it didn't happen like that. Uh, and uh, it, as it didn't happen in domestically, but also the relationship between Ukraine and Western powers started becoming deeper. Uh, and just one illustration of that was a November 2021 American-Ukrainian Security Pact, which actually, if you look at that, goes quite far on a bilateral basis. Um, and so uh, we have uh, this, um, uh, essentially, he, the, uh, the thinking now we hear feeding back is that Putin felt that he waited too long. If only he had acted earlier which suggests, back to Federica, your, your question is the kind of thinking there earlier. Uh, and that uh, Ukraine had already gone too far. So the commitments that have followed from the West to Ukraine, security commitments in this war, reflect that Ukraine had entrenched itself much more in the Western security community by this stage, um, which Russia had sought to avoid. What about the question whether great powers, um, can they lose the war? Oh, yes. Uh, well, um, of course, I mean, all these other cases, are, they're, not, they're not exactly analogous. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> we have, in, the, in this case, of course, this is a, uh, well, it's on various levels. One is the matter of uh, Russia's own, nature of Russia's 
entitlement claims over Ukraine as a part of a former or the former state in which the rulers in Moscow live. Uh, and that's important, it counts. Uh, and it's a part of what is seen on the Russian side as, as a part of the Slavic core of that. So it matters that much more. And so even if we, we you, know, you, you see Putin's language in 2014 in, in when he went, he, you know, Crimean um, justifications about historic Rus and being regathered. Some of that probably was believed. I think a lot of it was instrumental for the Russian domestic population. Some of it, I think, was, was believed. Um, so there's that, that whole dimension, which means it's much more core, sense of much more core part. So it's not wars over, you know, far afield. Uh, and it's very different to the commitment in Afghanistan. So, um, and um, there's now the issue of uh, Russian Putin individually having committed himself to this project so fundamentally through the recognitions, through recognition of these estates. His security coterie, as you saw in the Security Council meeting, that act of theater, I think were much more uncertain about this. And you could see some of them clearly were not expecting this or really wanting it. But he went through that theater to collectively draw them into the decision to make them responsible collectively as well, in a way. Uh, and, and they're bound up with it. Uh, so I think at this point, you could imagine that uh, a uh, holding on to the Luhansk and Donetsk so-called People's Republics in some shape or form could be re-presented, it could be as, as, as a victory. Because at the moment, the whole war is not, and it's no longer being presented as a war against uh, the Ukraine, Ukrainian Nazis uh, and, and, and administration. It's a war against the collective West, the whole of the West against Russia. And so what can be achieved in terms of what can be extracted as a victory is diff different to what can be extracted as a victory in just fighting against these Ukrainian Nazis. Um, and of course, how else can Russia explain a year on and it's still not being able to advance against this rabble that they talked about in Ukraine? Uh, in recent language, uh, Lavrov has described how, has drawn the analogy between the war and uh, the Napoleonic and Hitler attacks on Russia, saying that in both those cases, uh, Russia resisted the, the collective efforts of European countries alongside Napoleon and, and, Hit, and, and Hitler. So all kinds of countries are now assumed or claimed to be actually alongside Hitler. They weren't really against Russia. So it's, a, it's against, it's, it's a much larger, so the victory, so there's a question of definition of victory. However, Crimea is the, the real problem here. I do not believe that a, uh, a, a collapse of Russian support in Crimea withdrawal Putin himself individually could, could survive that at all. Uh, and it would be difficult, I think, even if the southern areas in Kherson and Zaporizhia, if those had to go, which really, you know, Ukraine as a state can't, can't properly exist, I think, if those are occupied. Those went. It's also difficult quite to conceive how Putin could sell that, even if he managed to somehow fudge a revision of the constitution, which is, of course, what would be necessary. I mean, he brought in the constitutional changes himself, so there may be a way of doing it, but it will be quite transparent to the security elite that it is a, it, it's, it's a, it's a huge concessions. Um, the system is brittle, um, and, uh, but, uh, and it brings us to wider questions, of course, if Putin is displaced, 
would the leader or leadership be any better or more favourably inclined to the West? I mean, they could cut a different deal, but they, it could be an entrenched, militaristic, resentful, and most of those who one could think of taking his place have a more limited vision in the sense that they're much less exposure to the West and the wider world. So. Thank you. We have time for two questions. Uh, gentleman with the gilet and then a lady with the collar blocker jumper just behind. Uh, Professor, your um, lecture was very substantive on discussing, you know, Quick laws. and to the point. Yes, laws and institutions. And introduce yourself. I, well, I'm, my name's Eamon McMahon. I was a student of politics 40 years ago, so make that what you will. Um, the problem with the, the, the challenge to the international order is weak Western leadership. We had Merkel, and then we've had Obama, who, and when, now with the benefit of hindsight, although at the time a lot of people thought uh, they were, had considerable shortcomings, and that it's their actions or inactions has, is one of the reasons why we are where we are today. I mean, for example, if we had a 21st century Harry Truman, do you think we would be where we are today? Thank you. Lady in color block just behind, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Darina Dvornichenko, visiting research fellow at the University of Oxford and Ukrainian refugees. Um, thank you, Professor, for your speech. You were talking about the tacit code of conduct and you mentioned uh, that it shouldn't be at the expense of uh, Ukrainian territory and territorial integrity. They also referred to the examples like Ukrainians shouldn't attack the territory of Russian Federation as the example that this code actually exists. But to me, it's obvious that these, uh, is, if this code exists, it is obviously uh, at the expense of Ukrainians, their lives, who suffer and die, ev not every day, but almost every week, from missiles launched from the Russian territory. And Ukraine cannot do anything. Ukraine, Ukraine cannot attack the area where these missiles are stored and where they are launched. So do you believe it is actually feasible and fair to insist on developing this tacit code of conduct uh, which will mean that uh, we are ready to neglect lives of Ukrainians in order to save life of Europeans. Thank you. Um, well, you have 10 uh, seconds, no, three minutes <laughs> uh, to answer the lack of leadership and the code of conduct. So this, this I think, is leadership really about support for what I call the, the more liberal uh, rules-based order, uh, Western conception of that. Uh, which is a much wider uh, set of, of, of principles and expectations. Uh, and you could say, of course, that there have been, this has been significantly influenced by material self-interest by Western states, and we could throw the energy into this mix, uh, and the sort of difference in, in perception of the, the seriousness of this, this challenge coming from Russia. Uh, and perhaps also division between uh, core concerns in, the, in, in Washington, China, and, and the European theatre. But the, in terms of the wider uh, support for sort of international order, we do have a difficulty here because there are large states, uh, China, uh, India, some others, that do continue to have a different perspective and they can't be simply corralled. Um, and I'd say that at this level, on a certain level, we have to think in terms more of a multi-normative order 
emerging, sort of multipolar to some extent, multinormative as well. Uh, and we are, in, in this liberal part, one of those normative orders in which they think one ca it can be sustained, but it will not expand out to encompass the rest of the globe. So the limitations of what is possible, uh, ultimately. Um, that said, I mean, leadership does matter, <laughs> I think, uh, a lot in international politics. And there have been, we, we can pick times and, and places and countries where things have been done better and th things have been done worse. Um, as far as the Ukrainian attack on Russia, uh, this is, I, I accept, there is a, this kind of trade-off sounds very um, transactional, um, but um, I think the, the justification for it is it is the way that could keep major Western powers engaged and committed to this, or they may well fall away. I mean, Germany has been close to doing that, it seems, at times. Uh, and it's been pulled along gradually uh, in a direction that it didn't expect it perhaps could have. Uh, and Charles Schultz's position is now significantly different to a year ago. Uh, it is, it is that, that concern about risk threshold and what is, what is, what is too risky um, is something that has to be taken seriously into account if the support base, coalition support base, is to continue and the military support for Ukraine is to continue to to come. I think that on the, on the specific uh, matters, of, let's say, on, on, on attacks, I mean, ultimately, Russia can continue to launch um, <clears throat> cruise missile attacks from the Black Sea or from the Caspian Sea, and they will be in sanctuaries which Ukraine will never be able to get at. So air defense in that is, is, is the response to that. Um, but I do, I would say, I'd stick my neck out and say that I think the capacity to be able to, to target uh, bases, to target supply depots and so forth in Crimea, absolutely. And I think that is a position that de facto has been accepted on the American side, the British side, and so forth, even if that is, may not have been conceived of uh, even six months ago. So they are, I say, rules of prudence that develop incrementally in response to the situation through signaling. And the risk of dangerous escalation is something that will remain very, very much uppermost in the minds of security policy decision makers in the major Western states. We need to keep the coalition together. And so I think those are the Right. We are running out of time. We are running out of time. And I will... We can continue. Okay. I'd, I'd rather use this last minute to actually advertise our next event. <laughs> I would like to advertise that the next event of the Department of International Relations, which is going to be on uh, something similar, foreign policy in the digital age, uh, Wednesday, the 8th of March, uh, 6.30 to 8 o'clock p.m. Uh, looking forward to seeing you there. And I would like to thank uh, a couple of people that have made this possible. Katie, would you like to stand, please? Our IR uh, administrator, Jürgen Hackley. The White Family, and obviously, Royalism, the star for tonight. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. 
we hope you join us at another LSE event soon.